Hosea chapter 5, I'm going, to read the, I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, 15 verses. Again, this is written, framed in a poetical manner, but it is the very word of the living God. Let's hear it together this morning. Hosea chapter 5, beginning with verse number 1. Hear this, O priests, pay attention O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore, Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Amen. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. To, let's pray. Let's ask for his blessing upon the preaching of it even this morning. Let's pray together. Father, as we now turn our attention in this time of our worship before you, we turn our attention to the living and true God, your word. We pray that you would help us, that we would hear it. And through you, that you, that you, through the eternal spirit now, would remember your promises to your people. That you'd grant him to us that we would hear. That we bear fruit from this a hundredfold that we would respond to the call of this text upon our lives. Be merciful to us now, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. It was Clifford Doughty, in his book, Experiment in Rebellion, who tells the shocking story of an incident that occurred during the war between the states. When the Union Army, under the command of General McClellan, was marching on Richmond, and it appeared that the capital of the Confederacy would be captured, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States, 
was baptized in his home by the rector of a neighboring church. With threatening danger, only 20 miles away, Davis decided to become a Christian. The sound of gunfire, the sound of danger, only 20 miles away, this man was compelled through that judgment that was impending upon him, doom that was coming upon him, he decided uh, to become a Christian. Sometimes the impending judgment of God awakens the souls of people. Sometimes it strikes fear in their hearts and, and they turn, turn to him and, and away from their misery that they have been living in and their rebellion and hardness of heart that they've been engaging in for however long their distress. Sometimes the threats of the judgment of God do just that. God does not waste his threats. He does not waste the threats of judgment. He doesn't waste his judgments at all. They serve a purpose to awaken, to arouse, and move his people to become a Christian. To become a faithful follower of the Lord. To walk according to his ways. To root their lives and establish themselves in the very covenant that he has given to them. That he has promised to fulfill in them. Sometimes God does threaten and in fact judge even those who say they're a Christian. Maybe that's what you need this morning. Maybe you need the threat of judgment. Maybe you need the threat of the judgment of a holy God who does not waste his threats, waste his judgments upon you. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you profess faith in Christ, but your heart is far from him. You say you know the Savior, but your life doesn't reflect it. Maybe it is that you do not know the Lord at all. You see, I can't presume standing up here just because you have showed up here, you've, you've entered this place, and maybe you've done this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. Maybe you're even a member of the church. I cannot presume in the place in which I stand and assume absolutely, definitively, that you know the Savior. The Spirit of God can, though. Maybe you need to hear him for the first time. You've heard about him. And at this time of the year, you can hardly help it. Everywhere you go, into the stores, into the malls, and, and in the radio, music, uh, song after song is speaking of Christ. Does anybody hear is anybody listening? Are you hearing? Are you listening? Maybe you have. You've heard it. But, but you have yet, yet submitted yourself to him. The judgment's coming. The judgment of God is coming. Not in the face of the Assyrian army. Not in the face of, uh, of what would happen to the southern tribes of Israel. In the face of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies. No, the, fa the judgment is coming. It's coming at the hands of the Lion of Judah. 
The one who we celebrate this time of the year as the suffering servant of Jehovah who came as a lowly babe in the manger is coming again. He's coming as the Lion of Judah. It is imminent. It will happen. It is not a maybe. It is definitively true. And perhaps today it's time for you to face the fact that judgment is threatening you. No more playing games with the God of heaven. You see, here in this chapter, friends, is what we have. The God of heaven himself saying. It's as it were, as it were he is now speaking. He, he's ripped the pen right out of Hosea's hand. Let me do this. I've got this. And he is threatening judgment against his people, his visible church, because of their waywardness, their hardness of heart, And that judgment is imminent for them. And it may be for you today. Because it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And brothers and sisters, you do not know when that is. None of us do. God does not waste these kinds of sermons. Nor does he waste these kinds of passages. He gives it to appeal to the hearts of wayward people to show them that in the face of punishment, in the face of judgment, there is still hope. There's hope. It's there. It's extended to the hardest of hearts, the the hardest of hearts and the most wayward of the wayward. We've noted already in context from Hosea 4, last Lord's Day evening, we noted how God set forth before the covenant people the indictments that he establishes for them. These are the things in which you have transgressed my law. This is how you have done so. He first addressed the people, and he addresses their sin, and then he addresses the priests, the leaders of the camp, the leaders of the people, and he places his greatest fury of judgment and indictment against them for the wayward, for the ways in which they have misled his people. He continues that very theme into chapter 5 with a very distinct difference. The charges end and the threat of judgment begin. But the cry is still there. Turn to me. Turn to me and live. Turn to me and escape the impending judgment that is coming. Turn to me. He continually shows them that he is still there. He is ready to forgive. He is ready to forgive you and me. He is ready to forgive. It doesn't matter what it is that you have done. It doesn't matter what it is you're doing. He will indeed forgive. And so this morning, with God's help, I want to show you the punishment of Jehovah towards his covenant people and the hope that he extends to them and to you. I want to show you the punishment of Jehovah. It's here. It's not pretty. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It's, 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 well, it's not pretty. And I'll show you that. But I'm going to also show you the hope that he extends to them and to you. Three points as we consider the entirety of Hosea chapter 5 this morning. First, we will consider the speech of Jehovah, verses 1 through 7, then the judgment of Jehovah, and then finally, the hope of Jehovah. The speech, 
the judgment and the hope of Jehovah, the God of heaven. Let's first consider this speech, for lack of a better way of expressing it, the speech of Jehovah that is really set forth in the first seven verses of this fifth chapter, who are indeed the recipients of this of this speech. Who is he speaking to most directly here? Well, yes, of course it would be true, no doubt, to say that he is speaking, he is speaking to the covenant people, the, the visible church. And that is true. You would not be wrong to say that. However, the focus really is and truly is upon the kings and the priests of the people. They have misled the people, and it's because of their poor leadership that we've already noted in, in chapter 4, the nation is in disarray. But notice how he begins this speech. Similar language that we've already noted from chapter 4, which is to say I'm not going to belabor the point. But notice how he begins. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. There's an appeal, a mandate to once again hear the God of heaven. To listen to what he is about to say. It's as though I would begin every sermon just that way. Listen, hear. God in this sermon, the triune God in this sermon, begins with an appeal that the people might hear, the kings, the priests, they might hear very much the word of the Lord. The, word, the, the way the words are constructed in chapter 5, they, they differ from chapter 4. They're still poetical, but it is though God himself, as I've already mentioned, takes the pen right from Hosea. Notice the, the use of the pronouns in verse 2. But I will discipline them. He is speaking. Verse 3, once again, the use of the pronoun. Verse 9. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15. It's quite obvious here that different from chapter 4, God himself is doing all the talking. And Hosea is just listening in like a bystander. At least that's the sense that you get from the matter. It heightens, as it were, the urgency of the entire issue. Jehovah is speaking. He is speaking directly as he took the pen from him. And we too, like them in those days, and we know that they did not hear him, but we must not be like them. We, we must hear. We, we, we must listen today to the word of the Lord when it is preached. Some of you really need to listen. This is not a joke. This is not a game this is life and death. But God appeals. He, he preaches at, to dead men that they might live. We too must hear as the word of God is preached when, whenever it is preached. The main, people for, the main problem for the people of old is that they did not listen to what Jehovah was telling them. How often does he warn you and warn me about the imminent consequences of our sin, your sin? How often does he plead from this pulpit through, an, uh, through, through a, a weak man that you might turn away from your sin? How often must he do that before he gets your attention, before you're hopelessly ruined? 
How often did God appeal to his covenant people? For hundreds of years, he pled with them through the voices of the prophets. Time and time again, he came to them in a gracious way to proclaim his excellencies himself to them, and they would not listen, and they were destroyed. How often has he been patient with you, long-suffering in his dealings with you, yet you still will not listen? Maybe you are here this morning. Maybe you are hearing the words of the Lord, but you're not listening. There are horrific sins in your life, yet you're not going to repent. You're not going to listen. You're going to continue burying them. You're not fooling God. Will you hear him today? This might be your only chance. This might be the last chance. To hear the word of the Lord. God in his grace, he, he brought you here today. I know you think you made plans and you orchestrated your day in such a way and it was all up to you and you got here wrong. You're here by God's providence. So maybe you need to be here because this might be the last time you'll hear the word of the Lord proclaimed, the urgency, the pleading to turn from sin, repent to the God of heaven before it is too late. Judgment is coming. It is imminent. Turn away. Hear the word of the Lord because he forgives. He warns in order to grant forgiveness, to pull repentance right out of his people. He will forgive. Well, who are the objects of this speech, really? It, of course, could be said that the people as a whole, the church, the visible church, yes, absolutely, without question, but it seems pretty obvious here as it's named, O priests, O kings, there in the opening verse, that the focus is really on the leadership of the people. Unlike chapter 4, where we saw the indictments of Jehovah leveled at both against the people and then the priests, here we see the issues aimed at the leaders of the Old Covenant Church, the priests and the kings. In summary, much as we considered last week, the target of the anger of the Lord is the leaders of his people. They are not living righteously. They are not teaching the law of God faithfully. They are teachers who do not live what they teach. They are poor kings. Note, none of the kings of the northern kingdom of which this prophecy is leveled were very good. In fact, they were all described as evil. Every one of them. How many of them? Many. Long is the patience of God. Until now, here, imminent, The judgment of Jehovah is about to fall. And so there are some specifics that are important to note in this speech that he gives, this argument. Jehovah argues first from the greater to the lesser. He does that in verse 1. You might not be well acquainted with the Bible when it comes to these particular locations that are mentioned there when he says, for you, you kings, you priests, you have been a snare at Mizpah. And you have set a tent, you have spread a net upon Tabor. You might think, well, what does that have to do with anything? I don't even know what those things mean. I mean, I know what a snare is, and I know what a net is, but what is his point? His point is that the nation is descended from her glory days. Reminds me of what's that Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days? Okay, I'm dating myself, I realize. But look. 
the nation of Israel had their glory days. The days in which they were, they were sinners, sure, and like you and me, but, but they were following the Lord and, and they're doing... This, this is that reference, the, the reference to these glory days, Mitzvah, the home of Jephthah, one of the judges of Israel in Judges chapter 10, who came in and crushed the Ammonites. How about the Tabor? Well, that's Balak, Balak's victory. You know, Deborah and Balak at Judges chapter 4, the traditional site of the transfiguration. By the way, the glory days of Israel. And look what he says. It's all gone. You have polluted it. You have ruined the glory days of my people because of your faithlessness and your, and your unwillingness to heed my voice and to do what I have told you to do to re, because you have rebelled against me. And because you have rebelled, my people rebel. The glory days are gone. Only the thing that lies in front of you now is judgment. Horrific misery. Terrible things. Those were the glory days as referenced by the prophet there in verse 1. But now things are they're terrible. The nation is in disarray. Sin is everywhere. Idolatry is running rampant. Hardness of hearts, disobedient to parents, rebellious. Everything is going on. Everything is falling apart. And judgment is there waiting for them. The priests have failed in their office. The kings, they don't lead in righteousness. And as a result, the nation is in absolute disarray. An analogy comes through the actions of Jehovah. An analogy that strengthens the argument that has just been given from the greater to the lesser, the glory days to the miserable days. The imagery of the, uh, of the gnat specifically shows how the people of God have become prey for the leaders of Israel. The leaders, they're serving their own interests. They don't care about the people. They care about themselves. We noted that last week in Hosea 4 where the priests were gloating over the sin of the people. Why? More food. More sacrifice, more food. More sin, more sacrifice, more food. It's a pretty logical sequence. People were using, the leaders were using the people for their own advantage. These leaders that at one time feared the Lord, they have now rebelled. And as such, the people are going to suffer tremendously the consequences of Jehovah. They, the leaders, the kings, they have rejected the living God. Let it be a warning to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the leaders of the church reject the God of heaven begin to do it their way, not his way, start walking according to their own wisdom, not his, replace the living God with all kinds of trinkets and nonsense and silliness and ridiculousness that God has never allowed, doesn't even command, he forbids, in fact. Watch out, for the people are in grave danger. How many churches do I have to name throughout the course of Presbyterian history to highlight that very truth? in which the leadership failed to uphold the veracity of the Bible, the inspiration of Scripture, the, 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 the powerful means of preaching the Word before the people of God. They replaced it with everything else, from skits to puppet shows to drama to dance. You name it. Everything that seemed good to them has destroyed the church because of their weakness as leaders 
to do what God has said. To stand with firmness on the truth, regardless of what the culture says they should do, to grow their church and make it so large. The priests have done this. The kings have taken advantage of the people. They've used them for their own benefit, for their own advantage. But not only is this occurring, there's a debasement then, therefore, that is turned over to the people, a debasement of the highest order. It's there in verse 2. It's verse 2. You should look at it, not me. Verse 2. But you're going to read it. Yes, I am. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. Most commentators believe, and I agree with this, that this is a direct reference to child sacrifice. What nation, what world, what world do we live in in which a people have so fallen away from the living and true God due to the failure of their leaders to, do the, to point the people of God in the right direction in which the people, the covenant people, are slaughtering their children in the face of God? This is what's happening. This is the consequence. This is the judgment that is coming to the people and is there now because they have rejected him. Think about the United States. How many millions of children have we aborted in the womb? A direct consequence to a nation that rejects the God of heaven. It's the consequence. But this is worse. These are living children. Not to say that they weren't living in the womb. Don't misunderstand me. But I mean, they're like a baby, three days old, five days old. This is murder, just like abortion is murder. And they're offering sacrifice of their children. God turns them over to a debased mind to practice what they want to practice, to live in the way they want to live. The consequences are disastrous. You want to do it your way? This is what will happen. Oh, that's not going to be me, you know. I can disobey God anytime I want. I don't have to listen to my parents. I don't have to obey because the consequences will never come to me. That's somebody else. That's what everybody says. No, it's not. It's you. It was them. Can it get worse? The moral fabric of the nation is in complete disarray. Commentators draw this conclusion from the words of Psalm 106, verses 36 to 38. A godless nation will behave in a godless way. What more evidence does one need that this nation is godless when it will willingly slaughter their children? Yes, we should pray for the removal of abortion. You know I serve on the Board of Right to Life of Southwest Indiana. You know this. You know my views on abortion. You know how much I can't stand, how much, well, it gets me upset, putting it mildly. Pray for the removal of abortion. Pray for godly leaders. Pray for faithful churches that will proclaim these hard passages in the Bible in a way that shakes the people up, wakes the people up. Well, not only is there this, this awful situation in which the leaders are, are ruining everything around them because of their poor example, there's idolatry, of course. That's always, that's everywhere, it seems. 
In verses 3 through 4, we have reference to that whole idolatrous way. I know Ephraim, Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. Why not? Because they're adulterers. That's why not. They have run off. Hey, look, the grass is green on the other side of the fence. I'm going to go worship a stick. Which is to say another consequence of their rejection is rational thinking. No longer do they think normally, now they think stupidly. This is what happens when sin takes root and becomes part and parcel of the way you live. You don't even make sense anymore. Just like our first parents in the garden who sinned against the holy God and decided to play hide-and-seek with an omniscient God, and that's silly. No rational thoughts. Look, here comes God. Let's hide. How much hide-and-seek game is that? Count to 100. Okay, 100. There you are. I mean, it's over. No rational thoughts. They cannot return to the God they know because they are so, st- they are so drunk in their stupor of their idolatry, a theme that has so, been w- so well established from the very onset of the book. The imagery is set in the frame of a faithless marriage. They played the whore, for the spirit of whoredom is, is within them. But note, they're not getting away with it. God looks down from heaven. Not really sure what he's doing. I'm not sure what she's doing in the middle of the night. I'm not sure what they're doing. I'm not sure what they're doing. I'm not sure. God sees our behavior every time. And frankly, brothers and sisters, that ought to cause us to think before we act. It might be the last time you disobey him. It might be the last time. You're stiffing your neck against a holy God. You might be broken off beyond remedy. I think I read that somewhere. God sees it, whether it's the sin of idolatry or another sin that you think you are getting away with under the cover of darkness. God sees it. He knows. He knows everything there is to know. Maybe that doesn't bother you. Maybe you're hardly moved by that fact. And it's a fact If that doesn't bother you, something's wrong with you. Something's wrong. Maybe you don't care. What does that say about your spiritual condition? I don't care if God sees what I do. I'm going to sin boldly right in his face. This is what they're doing. No, no. Those who love the Lord and Understand the great cost of Christ dying for that kind of attitude? It grieves them when they sin. They flee quickly before it takes root and turns turns to stupor and stupidity and irrationality. God sees it. The all-seeing of the Lord should make us all fear and tremble and walk according to his ways. So what's the conclusion? What what is the conclusion to all this? Well, verse 5, it's not happy. It's not let's celebrate. Things are wonderful. Who cares? Everything's grand. 
Guilt and shame. Guilt and shame come to a people who live this way. What does he say there? The people, pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah, too, shall also stumble with them. A result of their poor leadership, the result, it's not a good one. It leads to guilt and shame among the people. Notice how it's framed in the verse. is isn't just some people. is isn't just a few handful of people in the nation over here who are really bad. It's the whole place. Not just the northern tribes, the ten tribes that Hosea is generally prophesying to, but it's also the southern tribes as well. He mentions Judah specifically here. This is an all-inclusive thing. God is no respecter of persons. You want to disobey him? You want to turn away from him? You want to reject him? This is what will come. Guilt. Shame. What is it that Adam and Eve clothed themselves in the garden? It wasn't because they were cold. It was because they were ashamed. They were ashamed. Guilt and shame has come across the nation, the nation that God has plucked out of all the nations of the earth and called his treasured possession his chosen people, the people that he placed, he calls the apple of his eye, places his love upon, continues to do so, loving them even though he threatens them here with judgment. He says, there's nothing but guilt before you, nothing but shame in your face. It's why the leaders of the church must walk according to the word of God, teaching it, living it accordingly, their sins and their failures, they will impact the entire congregation, not just some people, all of them. It will bring the church into ruin, if not addressed. No cover-ups, no hypocrisy. No cover-ups. Well, I could spend a few minutes right there. How many churches today cover up sin? Bad, awful sin. They cover it up. They cover up the guilt, and they cover up the shame, and so nobody can see, but God sees. This is what they're doing. As leaders of the church, as represented by the priests here in this passage, faithfulness is required from the leaders of the church. Come what may, come no matter how hard it may be, no how many times people stand against you, talk about you, slander you, you stand faithfully with the God of heaven. If you do not, you will lead the church into shame and guilt and judgment. And not only is there guilt and shame, there's absolutely worthless worship. It's amazing, isn't it, that the people are still trying to worship? Bunch of hypocrites. Their hearts are far from him. They have committed wicked atrocities in his sight. They don't seem to care. They don't care. But they're still going to the temple. They're still engaging in worship. Notice how he puts it there in verses 6 and 7. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Wow. You're here today. You're worshiping. You think you are. But you've been covering up sin for a long time. You haven't dealt with it. You've been lying. You've been secretive. You've been doing things you ought not do. You know what it is. You're in this room. 
and you think you're worshiping and you're not because you haven't dealt with the sin. Jeremiah had something to say about this in Jeremiah chapter 7. And since I'm ahead of schedule, I can read it. I have a sermon on this passage that I don't think I've ever preached here. Maybe someday I will, but you don't need two heavy sermons in a row. So Jeremiah 7. This is the southern kingdom now. This is the people that resided in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah comes to preach the word of the Lord. Interesting. He's going to preach. And I'm just going to read it. I'm going to read you the substance of the sermon. And listen carefully to the way these people are described. They sound very similar to Hosea's day. They are just like them. But notice what they are doing. Just like the people in Hosea's day. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house. Where? At the temple. The place of worship. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Hmm. It's not going to save you, in other words. Why not? For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. In other words, you come in and you sing the doxology and you sing the hymns and you pray along with the pastor as he's praying and you follow along in your Bible as he's reading and you sing the hymns of the faith, but you are lying to the God of heaven. And you trust in that. You trust in the doxology and you trust in that hymn. You trust in deceptive words. I'm a Presbyterian. Will you steal? This is God speaking. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? You almost hear God's voice just rising in the equation, in the speech, in the, in the sermon. How dare you come to me when you're living this way? This is what he's telling Hosea. Your worship is worthless. Your worship is worthless. It remains that way until you turn away from the sin. It remains that way as long as you continue to bury sin that you ought not be burying. These people are trying to seek the Lord, but he cannot be found. It's not like he's hiding. He just can't be found. The blessings of the Lord that they desire will not come. He has withdrawn his presence from them. A cloud covers the place, though they try in vain to honor even the new moons and the Sabbaths. 
It is all in vain because they're living in rebellion against the God of heaven. And so a judgment comes. A warning is issued. It is issued to the northern tribe. It comes in that typical fashion in which the prophet employs a very strong warning by using the sofar as an instrument of impending doom. It is, in fact, the most common instrument that is used in, in the Old Testament. The sofar was a, was a horn. It was, a, it was like a trumpet, in a sense. The sound, the battle, the sound, danger that is impending, danger that is coming against the people. Blow the horn in Gibeah. The trumpets in Ramah, he says, sound the alarm at beth Aben. We follow you, O Benjamin. The sofar, that most frequently used in, uh, instrument in the Old Testament, though mentioned also is the trumpet. They serve one purpose, however, to warn the people that judgment is coming. And in this case, the judgment will fall on them from the Assyrians to the north. And the mention of the two locations, again, puts them in the path of this eventual invasion. One commentator mentions, stating just on this verse alone, he says the place names that, that opens this oracle straddle the border of the two kingdoms, a warning that the invader would penetrate Israel right to its southern extremity, and they did. To the alarm of the Benjamites, the Gibeah and Ramah, which lay only just beyond the boundary. Sound the trumpet, Israel. Sound the so far, because doom is coming. You know, every Lord's Day, God does that. No, no, there's not an instrument up here, and you wouldn't want me playing it if it were. But it's not an instrument made with hands. Every Lord's Day, a warning is sounded. The sound of the trumpet goes off every single time. The Word of God is opened and proclaimed from this pulpit as the warnings of Jehovah expressed in His Word go forth from faithful pulpits wherever they are. No, it's not an instrument made with hands, but it is the instrument represented in the voice of an ordained minister calling God's people to walk with him, to turn from sin, trust in Christ. It is a call to the godless and those who would reject Christ to turn to him. That's what we do as ordained ministers. We sound the trumpet. We sound the warning. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The warning is given. The result of it is that judgment will fall, and indeed it did. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian armies came in and took the northern kingdom away. Friends, friends, the, God, the wrath of God is coming. I can hear the people in Hosea's day. Yeah, right, sure. It's been hundreds of years, and nothing's happened yet. Nothing's going to happen now. It's all hysteria. It's all dramatized. It's nonsense. You can hear it now because we hear it today. We hear it in the pews. We hear it in the world. Yeah, yeah, right. The Assyrians came in and sieged the entire northern kingdom and laid it waste. 
Judgment's coming. God's wrath will be poured out on those who hate him. You must turn. You must turn away from that. You must look to Christ. You can't just sit there and hold on to this thing and think it's never going to happen. It's an awful risk, my friends, to bet on that because you would be losing it just like they did because we know they didn't repent. We know they didn't listen. We know they were judged. Will you be judged? Will you fall under the wrath of a holy God when right now, right this minute, today, the trumpet is sounding, the alarm is going off, turn away from your sin before it is too late. That's what you must do. To do that is to escape an eternal judgment, not a temporal one, an eternal one. You look to Christ. I am a sinner. I've been bearing my sin. Oh God, I am so remorseful over this misery that I put myself in. I have offended you. I need the Savior. Give me Jesus. I don't know much about him other than what the, the preacher's been talking about, but, but I know I'm a sinner and I need Christ. I don't want this doom, this judgment that's coming. A curse that is laid upon the people. The mention of the moving, the, the mention of the moving of the ancient landmark represents a curse that came across the land, the curse of God on the people as a result of their sin, overflowing like a tsunami of water across the people. They are cursed by God. A rot that is infectious. It goes right through the nation. Verse 12. Reject the Lord and He will discipline you by leaving you to your own devices and ways. That's what you want. You want to live in this sin? Okay. Go ahead. You've persisted. Fine. Continue. Rot sets in. Decay. Debasement. Misery. Consequences you don't want to contemplate. Rot goes across the nations. It'll eat you away. The guilt of your cursed existence will drive you to near madness. This is what happens to every professing Christian when they live in secret sin. They spend all of their energy trying to shut up their conscience. They make plans to avoid being found out. Rot has set in. And God who sees it all will cause them to rot to their bones. It's a dreadful picture of a nation, a people, who will not repent. And then, of course, in verse 13, we have the sickness and death. I don't think I need to say much about that. I think that's obvious. Death, of course, is that which we all will face. The death of the doomed, the death of the judged before a holy God is nothing but a tragedy. The death of the unregenerate, the death of those who do not know the Savior is nothing but a tragedy. It does not have to happen. But for the Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is turning away from sin, death is just a doorway. It's not a judgment. It is merely a moment and a twinkling of an eye, and boom, I'm in the presence of Christ. 
May the Lord hasten that day. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? And it is. It's horrible. Maybe it's you. But friends, the story doesn't end with God's judgment on the nation. Again, a faithful God in the face of faithless people moves to write verse 15. Just like in chapter 4, we note this silver lining in the misery of the equation. We again have in verse 15, again, hope pushed out there. I will, I will return again to my place until, until what? Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, they earnestly seek me. God does not waste his judgments. His judgments are designed to cause His people to repent. They didn't all do that. Some did. He pushes hope out in front of them. He says, look, despite how bad you are, how wicked you have been, how many sticks you have worshipped, how many children you have sacrificed, how many abominations you have committed in my sight, I will forgive you. All of it, if you would only turn to me. Most of us could never do that. In fact, I would suggest none of us could do that. You killed my child. You murdered my family. You blew up my house. You stole all my money. You stole my spouse. You, pick something horrible, horrific. How quick are you to forgive? This God, your God, forgives instantly. You turn from that sin. How is it he could do it? Well, there's a first, a frightening reality in the verse. That reality is that he'll stay hidden from you until you turn from that sin. I will return to my place, he says. What place is that? Anywhere they're not. Away from them. The comfortable presence of God has been removed from them. But, he says, there is a future hope for you. That future hope is shown in the picture of them turning away from their sin, repenting of their sin, and looking to the God that loves them. In these things, even in these things, there is a picture of hope offered by a loving and faithful God. That hope will ultimately be realized. Not in a priest that comes after these priests. Not in another king that shows itself, himself later on. But in the priest and the king. Where is it we can place our hope in the face of awful sin and evil and wickedness that we have committed in our days? Only in Christ. How is it we can escape the impending judgment and then the trumpet sound that is going off all across this country this morning in the preaching of God's word? How is it we can escape the judgment to come only in Christ? The hope is given. Turn to me and live. He says it to them while they're in their distress, when they're in their misery. 
when they're under the judgment of a, of a holy God. In your distress, turn to me. As simple people, you and I, we are in distress daily. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. If I were to cut open myself and show you the blackness of my own heart, I think you'd be aghast. Before you get too arrogant, so would your heart be that way. We need a Savior. We need a Savior who will rescue us from these things. A Savior who will forgive through the work of Christ, who takes the just wrath of a holy God. He doesn't, he doesn't put it on you now like these people are going to experience. He puts it on Christ. All that he threatens against them, he now puts on him. All that he threatens against you as you turn to him by faith, he puts on Christ. And you are no longer under his condemnation. That hope can't come through your efforts. Look at the mess you've made. Can't come through my efforts. Look at the mess I've made. Can only come through Christ alone. He is the perfect priest. Not like the unfaithful priest of Hosea 5. He is the perfect priest. He is the perfect king. Not like the unperfect, imperfect kings of Hosea 5. He is the perfect priest, the perfect king, who takes the full ounce of God's holy wrath upon himself that you and I might never, ever have to experience his judgment. And all it takes is simple faith and trust. Be merciful to me, a sinner. The tax collector shouts, cries. In all of the wrath that God could muster was removed in an instant and placed upon the Savior who took it all for him. He takes it all for you. You could pretend. You can. Maybe some of you are. You could pretend that the judgment of God is not coming. You could pretend that the judgment of God is not already here. You could pretend all you want. You might even convince yourself. That is to say, lie to yourself, deceive yourself. You, you can do all of those things. You could pretend that it will not fall on sinners. You could pretend that it won't happen. My friends, it's going to happen. It is happening. It did happen. It will. It's coming. It is close at hand. No, I don't know when. That is to say, the end. It won't come in the face of the Assyrian army. It won't come in the face of the northern, uh, of the Union armies into Richmond. It's going to come at the hand of the Lion of Judah. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who will rule with a rod of iron against evil and wicked people. It's coming. God's judgment must happen against sin if He is God. And He is. Therefore, two things. Very simple, 
actually. They're the same two things that were offered to the people in Hosea's day. The same things that are offered to you today. Reject Christ and the hope he offers you and face the judgment of God alone. Reject Christ and the hope he offers you, the forgiveness of sin. Reject it and you will face the judgment of God alone. It's not a party in hell, contrary to the world's ideas. It's utter blackness. You won't see anybody. You will sit there for eternity in your sin and misery, regretting and mourning the day of your birth, wishing for all eternity that you had simply listened to this sermon and turned to Christ. Or, or, aren't you glad there's an or? Because that's what we all deserve, the first one. Or, you embrace the hope of Christ. Jesus, I don't know all of the, I'm, I, don't, I just know I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm a disaster area. I'm a walking contradiction of life and existence. I've been hiding. I've been cheating. I've been lying. I've been stealing. I need the Savior. Help me. That's it. It's that simple. It's not that hard. Confess your sin. Let him take the judgment. Let him take it. Let him take the full wrath of God that's yours. Let him take it. That's the hope that Jehovah offers the people in Hosea's day. It's the hope he offers you today. Here it is. Which one will you take? What will you do? Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Our Father, we thank you again for your word, though strongly penned for us and word that should awaken us. We pray, O oh Father, for your mercy. We are helpless sinners. We are in such need of Christ. We face the terrible judgment of a holy God without him. Father, spare us from the impending doom. Grant your spirit that we might live, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.